Our text for today is found in Genesis chapter 1, way back at the beginning of your Bible. Um, First book, first chapter, verses 26 through 30, and we're also going to look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 15. So Genesis 1, 26. These are the words of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. Now, drop down to chapter 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gathering us together here today in your house to renew covenant with you. We pray, God, that you would now come during this time of instruction and allow us to hear your word. Lord, help me to get out of the way and for the people to hear you speak. Pray that you would come powerfully by your spirit and open up your truth to us and apply to our hearts and lives. Pray that you would work in this place, O God, today towards your desired end. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we venture back to 
um, look at our first parents. And you may wonder why we're not starting in uh, the beginning of the creation of the cosmos, since we're looking at everything from Genesis to Revelation and we're going back to the beginning. But that is because we're looking at our first parents and we're looking at the story of our family history. Um, so we begin there, but we will look back at the creation account and make some applications for our lives later on. So we will get there. But first, we're going to look today at our original parents and their work. And it's interesting sometimes when you think about your parents, the many similarities that you have to them. Um, a lot of times you'll make similar facial expressions to your uh, family members or to your parents, and you'll have similar characteristics, or you'll say things a certain way that's just like your mom or your dad, and people will point out to you, hey, that's just like your mom when you do that, or that's just like your dad. And it is the same way with our original parents. There are similarities that we bear to them um, in our lives, and who we are, and what we do today. In our sermon, uh, there are two major ways uh, that we see that we bear these similarities to our parents And we are going to focus in on just those two things today. So the two things we're looking at are what we are and what uh, we are supposed to do. So what we are and what we're supposed to do. And the first thing, what we are, uh, is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where we read that God created us in his image. God says there, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And by the way, the plural there of us is a reference to the Godhead, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not a a reference to God consulting with the angels or the animals or anything like this. God doesn't consult with his created order when he creates, and nor does he allow them to enter into creation with them. Um, And we know that from the text because it says... Um, first of all, that we're created in the image of who? God. We're not created in the image of angels or man or uh, animals or anything like this. Moreover, we know that God doesn't allow angels to enter into the creation process because God alone is the creator, right? This is one of the main things that uh, sets us apart. There, there are many, but this is a this is one of the main distinctions that we make between God and ourselves. That He's the creator. And we are the creation. So there's that dissimilarity. But there's also a similarity in that the text says we are created in the image of God. Now what does this mean that we're created in the image of God? It's a question that theologians have theologized about for years. Um, And I I think one helpful thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about this concept of the image of God is that man is uh, the image of God. It's not that the image of God is in man, but that man himself is the image of God. So that might help you as we go along and think about this. Um, So when we say that man is the image of God, we're saying that man... Uh, represents God in all that he is. That is, man in his constitution and all that makes up a man represents God in his mind and his body and his soul. But we must be careful to remember that we we have to maintain this distinction. 
You don't equivocate God and man. They're, they're similar, but they're not equal. Um, if I, for instance, uh, if I were to put a picture up here of a car for you, okay, what am I doing? I am, I am giving you an image of something that you can relate to in your mind. The picture represents a car. It's, it's not a car, but when you see it, it conjures up all sorts of thoughts in your mind about these hunks of metal out there in the parking lot that we use to transport ourselves back and forth. It's a picture of a car, it, it's, but it's not a car. It represents a car, okay? And in the same way, man represents God. Men are images of God. And this is not a foreign concept to us. Uh, we know that throughout Scripture, God uses uh, creation to magnify himself. You think of the psalmist, he says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The creation, the cosmos itself, tells us something about God, how that they are so vast and, and, and it seems as if they keep going and going and going and that they're infinite. Well, that tells us something about the nature of God. Um, even more than that, we can look at animals and they teach us things about God. You think of the lion and how bold and how fierce it is and that reminds us of the strength and the power and the courage of God. Um, or storms. You can think about a storm and how treacherous and how threatening it may be. And that tells us about God and His wrath. You know, it reminds us of the wrath of God, another attribute. Even inanimate objects teach us something about God. The Bible tells us that, that, uh, the Lord is a rock, right? He's our rock. Um, and that is that He's steadfast and He's immovable. He's faithful. He's always going to be there. He's a foundation upon which you can build your lives. And so God is like a rock. He's the rock of our salvation. But man is a, get this, a more exquisite and fuller image of God in creation. Man himself takes up everything that we know from our experience in the world, everything that we see visible and everything that we don't see invisible, and he holds it up in himself to magnify the glory of God. Let me explain, man. Uh, we can think about some of the different aspects of man. Man has a soul, right? Man, the Bible says that God came down and he, he formed, uh, formed man of the dust of the earth and he breathed into him and he became a living soul. That is, he has a spirit. And this is different from the animals who God created indirectly who don't have spirits. Men have spirits. And God is a spirit. Um, like angels. Angels are spiritual beings. But men are not just spiritual beings. They don't just have a spirit. They have a physical aspect to their being. They have bodies, right? This is something that the angels do not have. So even in our bodies, we are representing God to the world in some way. When you read throughout the scriptures, you see things like God looks and God has eyes and God has a strong arm. But God doesn't have these things. God is a spirit. These are just ways that God communicates things to us about himself. But man is representing to the world those things about God. We have arms that represent things like strength and, and eyes, look, uh, which is representing things like light, which give us the ability to see, and, and so on. So man has a body, man has a spirit, and man also has faculties uh, like God. Man has a mind, he has a will, he's got emotions, he's got desires, uh, he, has, he has different attributes. We can say that men are holy, we can say that men are righteous, that men are good. These are all ways in which we reflect God in our uh, being. It has been said that God is a, uh, I'm sorry, it's, a, it's been said that man is a microcosm of the world. That is, everything that 
is in the world that we see and that we know of visible and invisible is found in man himself. And thus he sets forth the best reflection of God in all of creation. You may have heard this phrase before that man is the crowning jewel of all creation. Um, the highest, um, most glorious aspect of all God's creation. Man in himself is made up of everything that glorifies God, visible and invisible. So this is what we are. We ask the question, what we are, we are the image of God. We are the best reflection of his nature, of his person, and of his character in the world. That is what we are, and that is what we are to be. But next we see in our passage what we are supposed to do. Uh, God has given us a task to perform in the world as the image of God, and we see that back in uh, verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. And we will read 27, uh, which just reiterates basically what we learned. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, what we have in this verse is uh, what is known in the Hebrew as a wall consecutive imperfect. <laughs> it's just kind of a fancy word for a tool that the Hebrews would use when they were writing to create a flow of thought in the narrative, to create a chain of events. They use words like and and then and so. So and so did this, so and so did that, or so he did this and so he did that, or and he did this and and he did that, or then he did this, and then he did that. It's a way for the narrator to kind of explain something happened and then explain a little bit further how it happened. So when it says that God blessed them, that's what he's doing. It's almost as if there's a colon there after God blessed them. And I think a better translation would be God blessed them by saying, uh, be fruitful, multiply, subdue, and take dominion. Uh, so God, it's not as if God is commanding them here to do it, but that he is blessing them to do it. Does that make sense? And when, when God blesses us to do something in this particular context, to bless uh, means to empower and to enable and to provide for to perform that task. Uh, when God blessed, he would bless women with the ability to have children, or he would bless men with the uh, ability to generate income and to prosper. And so that is what God is doing. He's blessing them. And he's enabling them to perform this task that he has given them in the world. But man does have some culpability in this. It's not as if, you know, God just does it and we're kind of just sitting there uh, indifferent and passive while the whole thing takes place. No, he says that we are to multiply, subdue, and to take dominion. And this is what is known um, as the cultural mandate. This is how theologians have referred to this mandate for men to multiply, to subdue, and to take dominion. And this is essentially the work that God gave the human race to do prior to the fall. Essentially what God did was he created everything, and he got it going, and he made it good, and he made it glorious, and then he handed it over to Adam and said, hey, you rule over it. <clears throat> you will be my vice regent here on earth. You will be my representative King And what Adam was to do was he was to lay hold of that creation that God had made, 
and then he was to work it and to cultivate it and to transform it and to make it into something more glorious. And he was to continue to do this over and over again, bringing creation from one degree of glory to another, all the while at the end giving it back to God in praise, for he is the one who gave it. And this is what it means to take dominion. So in other words, he's to lay hold of creation, and he's to make it better. He is to cultivate it to its highest degree. He's to take dominion. And God gets Adam going in this task of taking dominion by having him name the animals. He brings all the animals to Adam, and he has Adam name each one of them. And what Adam is doing when he names the animals is taking dominion over them. When you, when you name something, you lay claim to it, right? You're saying that it belongs to me. I, I have authority over you because I name you. That's why we name our children, because they're ours. They belong to us, and they're supposed to obey us. Right, kids? <laughs> so, Adam begins by naming the animals, but he's supposed to do even more than that. He's supposed to look at the animals and to observe the animals and learn from the animals. You see that when... God brings these pairs of animals to Adam, two by two by two, and Adam realizes, wait, there's two of them, but there's only one of me. There's supposed to be a helper for me. So he's learning from the animals. Later on in the Proverbs, the writer tells um, the sluggard, the lazy person, go learn from the ant. Go down there to the ant hill and see how they store up food for themselves in time so that they have it later on. He's supposed to look at the animals and learn from them <clears throat> and take dominion over them. Use them for greater purposes. Um, use what you've learned from them for greater purposes in the world. Moreover, he's to look at the creation itself and learn from it and to take dominion over it and use it and transform it and make it more glorious. He looks at the trees and cut the trees down and use them for firewood and then later build houses with them and then we take them and we plane them and we make paper and all kinds of things with them. Um, there's grapes you know, out there that are to be crushed down and made into wine. Wine is glorified grapes. There's, there's wheat that needs to be broken down and made into bread. There's gold that needs to be smelted and, and uh, um, reformulated and turned into jewelry for people and for kings and later on for uh, adorning the house of the God to, to, uh, the house of God to adorn his sanctuary. So Adam wants to lay hold of creation and begin to cultivate it, to transform it. And in doing so, he's taking dominion over the creation. And what is he supposed to do with these things after he has transformed them and turned them into something more glorious? He's to offer them back to God as God is the creator and giver of all things. This is what is known as subduing and taking dominion. You subdue the earth and everything in it by taking it and learning as much as you can about it and then by transforming it and making it into something better. And then you give God the glory for he is the one who is providing it for you. He's enabling you to do it and he's empowering you to carry that task out. And in this way, God takes dominion through you in the world. But it wasn't, only, it wasn't possible for only two people to do this. <laughs> God didn't leave this task up to just Adam and Eve since the world is so vast. So what else does he tell them? Well, to multiply. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Well, why? So that God might multiply his image on the earth. This is God's plan. He wants to multiply his image everywhere and in every 
place so that God's image would be set up as ruling over creation. Because it is God, ultimately, that is ruling through us, through man. You have to understand that in the ancient world, when a king would come in and conquer a territory, what he would do to let those people know who was ruling over him, uh, ruling over them, was set up his image in that place. He would set up a picture of himself or of his God so that those people would know when they came into town and looked and saw the image who was ruling over them, who had taken dominion over them. And in the same way, God is taking his image, multiplying it in people, and he takes those people and he uses them to conquer conquer territory for his namesake. So... When people who are created in the image of God go out and subdue the earth, God gets the glory. Ultimately, God is pointing back to himself and saying very loudly, it's me, it's me, I'm the one who gave this to you. I'm the one who enabled you to do, it, uh, to do these things. I'm the one who provided for you all this stuff. All of creation, especially mankind, screams God's glory. It's all pointing back to him. And so what God uh, does is he uses his image, um, he uses mankind to extend his image and his glory throughout the world. Now there's one more piece to this mandate that we must bring in, and we find that in chapter 2, verses 10 through 15. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 7. Flip back over to chapter 2, looking at verse 7. Um, through the end. Read it again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four, excuse me, four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here we find that there's something more fundamental to the task of man. There's something more basic, something more foundational, as it were. When God creates man, he sticks him in the garden and he gives him instruction on how he is to live and to work in the world. And the garden is the original sanctuary of God. It is the original temple of God. It is the place where God and man would have intimate fellowship with one another. Uh, It is the place where God's unique presence would be manifested. Uh, it's, It's interesting to note that the word used later on for God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, we'll read that next week, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day is the same word that is used later on during the time of Israel for God's presence in the tabernacle. And then these two words that God uses 
to tell Adam what he's supposed to do, to work it and to keep it, are liturgical words. They are words that are used throughout uh, the rest of the Old Testament in a priestly way. They have a priestly function to them. Uh, the priests were to uh, guard and to keep. Uh, they were to work in the tabernacle, and they were to keep the laws concerning worship. That is, they were to obey these laws. They were to uphold them and to keep them, making sure that God's um, worship was not perverted, that, God, that worship was carried out in the way that God had uh, directed it to be done. And they were to guard it. That is, they were to make sure uh, that nobody came into the tabernacle and put their hands on anything that they were not supposed to. Um, you, may, you may remember um, the story of the king who goes in, he gets puffed up uh, in, later on uh, in his life, um, or maybe in the middle, I'm not sure, can't remember. Uh, the king goes into the temple and he decides that he's going to offer up some, uh, some incense on the altar. And the priest and the Levites try to rebuke him for doing this. And he goes ahead and does it anyway. And then leprosy breaks out on his forehead. You see, the priest and the Levites were to be there guarding, making sure nothing unclean went in. Uh, they were armed with spears and they would kill anybody who were to go out uh, go into the temple and stretch out their hand and touch something uh, that they should not have done. And so these are the two words that God uses to describe the work of Adam and Eve in the original temple, garden, sanctuary. So Adam is to do the same thing, essentially, as those priests. He's to be the high priest of God in the temple, and Eve is to be his liturgical helper. So worship is the most fundamental thing. It is the most basic thing. It always has been, and it always will be. So what does this tell us? That the, um, it tells us the work of our first parents was priestly. They were to begin their work in the garden, and from there they were to branch out into the rest of the world with their descendants until the whole world essentially became one big garden Sanctuary, uh, sanctuary. They were to extend God's garden sanctuary wherever they went. And we know this not, uh, and I'm going to explain this in a second. Um, when, we, when we talk about the Garden of Eden, um, we know that it was uh, located on a mountain because Scripture explicitly tells us that, but not only because it tells us, but because there's four rivers that flow from the Garden of Eden. And we know that rivers usually flow downhill. Okay, so mountains in Scripture are the places that meet, uh, man will meet with God. And interestingly enough, the Garden of Eden is located on a mountain where Adam and Eve would meet with God in his presence. And from that mountain, they were to travel down these four rivers out into the four corners of the earth. And those lands were filled with gold and all kinds of precious stone. According to James Jordan, a theologian I read, and, and I agree, um, Adam and his descendants were to go out to the four corners of the world, working the ground and transforming the world as they went, making it into something more glorious. And as they went out into the four corners 
and met with the people who would eventually populate those regions, they were to trade with those people the things that they had made for the gold that they had harvested, and then they would take that gold and bring it back up to the temple of God where they would adorn the original sanctuary or tabernacle of God. And while they were going, they were to bear witness. They were to tell the people about the God that they worshipped. They were to tell the people about the God of heaven and earth who made them, and they were to invite those people to come back up to worship with them in the original garden sanctuary. And those people would eventually go with them up to the garden, and they would worship God. And when God got a hold of them and they got a hold of God, they would take that God back with them to their homes and to their families, and they would worship God there, and they would become little garden sanctuaries in the world. And eventually, over time, there would be more and more people taking this message of God back with them to their land and worshiping God and their families, and it would extend out further and further and further into the world until the whole world was being subdued by the image of God, and men from everywhere in every region were worshiping God and coming up together to the garden sanctuary to give honor and glory to their creator. This was the plan of God. This was the original task, the original work that God gave to our original parents. And it is the same task that we have been tasked with today. This cultural mandate that's given to Adam and Eve was reiterated to Noah after the flood, and I would argue that it's reiterated by the Lord Jesus Christ and extended on, extended upon in the Great Commission. So what are some things that we can learn, some principles that we can glean from our original parents and the work that God created them to do? First, it is noted by uh, James Jordan, theologian, that uh, God creates the world according to a particular pattern. Okay? God chose to create the world in uh, the space of six days. He could have done it instantly if he wanted to, but he decided to do it in a six-day pattern. He could have done it over billions and billions of years, but he doesn't. He decides to create the world in a six-day pattern. Why does he do this? Well, to give us a pattern, an example, to live and to work by. Now, Jordan notes that God creates the world ex nihilo. This, is, this means out of nothing. God doesn't have pre-existing material that he's working with. He speaks and he creates everything. And then he begins to reformulate it. God lays hold of his creation and... Uh, he then, and he does this by speaking. God said this and God said that. God said this and God said that. And then he begins to separate his creation. He takes um, light and he separates it from darkness. He takes the water and he separates it from the firmament. And then he begins to, um, to redistribute what he has separated. He gives the firmament to the sun and to the moon, and to the stars. He gives, he gives the land to animals and to beasts, uh, the land and the sea to animals and to fish, and ultimately he gives everything to man. And all the while God is going through and he's evaluating what he's doing. He's pronouncing that it's good. He's pronouncing judgments on his creation and acknowledging that this is something good that I've done. And then in the end, on the seventh day, God sits back and he enjoys his work. He enjoys the work that he has created. And this is very similar um, to what we do all the time on a regular basis when we work and when we do even the most menial task. Uh, for instance, my wife's a photographer. She'll take her camera, she'll lay hold of her camera, and she will take a picture of a family, 
and then she'll separate that picture of the family from her camera to the computer, and then she'll begin to rework it, making an already beautiful family even more glorious. All the while, she's going through and she's she is evaluating whether it's good, and then she dis- redistributes those pictures back to the family to enjoy. And we do this all the time. You can't escape it if you're the image of God. You image Him no matter what you do. And even in the most menial task, you'll go to your laundry room and you'll separate your dirty clothes. You'll grab a hold of them, take them out of the dirty basket, put it into the laundry machine, and then it'll go in there and reformulate the dirt molecules that were in there and take them out and wash them away. And then once you take the clothes back out, you look at them and realize if they're good. Well, our wives do anyway, right? <laughs> no, we, we take them out and make sure they're clean. And then we hand them, we redistribute it to our family so that they can enjoy them again. And this is what... We do because we're image of God. We cannot escape it. If you are created in the image of God, it most, necess- uh, most necessarily, necessarily has an effect on who you are and how you live your life. So the question is, at the end of the day, do you acknowledge it? Do you acknowledge that you are created in the image of God? One of the main differences between a believer and an unbeliever that uh, is that in this process, the, the believer gives thanks to God for what he has given him to work with. He acknowledges that all things come from God, his gifts, his materials, his abilities, and so forth. And when he's all done, he acknowledges that it all belongs to the Lord. He gives it back to him in praise. Unbelievers do not. The unbeliever does not give thanks to God. He does not recognize that they are... Uh, that he's created in the image of God. He doesn't give glory to God. The unbeliever, what he does is he, he confuses the relationship between creation and creator, and he makes himself into a God, and he makes himself the highest end, and he gives thanks to himself, and everything he does, he does for himself at the end of the day. And brothers and sisters, we are not to be this way. We are to give thanks, recognizing that everything we receive, we receive. From God, we're to give it back to Him in praise. Something else to point out uh, about this is that it gives dignity to everything that we do. Um, every bit of work that we do is holy and sacred. No matter what it is, no matter what your work is or what your calling is, you have been tasked with a sacred duty and you are imaging God in the world wherever you go and you are to do it as unto Him. And we're to remember all the while that we too are priests. And as we go along the way, performing our work, taking and laying hold of creation and transforming it, making it more glorious, giving thanks to God and glory back to Him, uh, we're to tell people about the God that we worship, tell them that He's a good God and that they can come back here together with us at these little uh, garden sanctuaries that we call the church and worship God with us. And hopefully, eventually, they'll take the God that they get hold of here and bring him back to their families and worship together with him there so that in the end, all the nations, all the world, and all the peoples will be giving thanks to God, having his praise on their lips and doing his work in the world. So This is the original task of our parents, and it is still our task today.